0: This morning, I want to look at the doctrine of our spiritual adoption, the adoption that we have to our Heavenly Father because of the work of Jesus Christ. And I want to unpack it in in two particular emphases. One, I want us to understand that adoption, spiritual adoption, is primarily and uniquely the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, it is, a, it is an exceptional and spectacular work of the Holy Spirit that we often uh, underappreciate in terms of uh, the pages of the New Testament. But secondly, I want us to appreciate that our understanding of our adoption as sons, as daughters, right, into this household, into this family, into the household of God, our Heavenly Father, is crucial to appreciating what it means that we are saved. If, if, I've read this before, and I'll read it again for you just to kind of consider this. But J.I. Packer once talked about God's fatherhood over us, and he says, that this, he, he speaks to it this way You sum up the whole of New Testament religion, if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. We're going to unpack that thought, and not just that thought, really the scriptures behind that thought um, in a moment. And if you haven't done so, you should turn to Romans chapter 8, and we're going to look at that. But let me read to you Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 12. Um, And then the passage that we're looking at is 14 through 17. But as you'll see soon enough, uh, it is helpful for us to catch um, that section from verse 12. Romans 8, starting in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also, that we may also be glorified with him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, even on this Lord's Day, even on this communion Lord's Day, where we celebrate your table, Lord help those Christians in this room recognize that their faith, their redemption, their justification by the blood of Jesus Christ has opened to them more than just the legal standing but a relationship of affection and love. Father, we thank you that we can call you our Heavenly Father and know that this Heavenly Father cares for his children with wisdom and power and love and grace. Help us to lean in on this this morning, even as we prepare for the Lord's table, so that we might uh, be renewed in our affection For this salvation that is so rich. Help us this day, Lord, of all days. Think about adoption. Think about physical and real and earthly adoption. And give praise to you that there is compassion in this world enough to rescue orphans. To rescue those that could be left behind. But Lord, we also give you praise for our spiritual adoption that we have been brought into your household and we have been accepted and that we belong. Not because we deserve it, not because we, we are better than others, but simply because you cast your love upon us. So we praise you for your fatherhood. We praise you for our adoption and the work of the Holy Spirit to bring us to yourself. We praise you for all of these things in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So we are going to be looking at the Spirit of Adoption. And by Spirit, I mean capital S, the Holy Spirit of Adoption, because that's the actual title that Scripture uses for the Holy Spirit in verse 15. But we'll get there in a second. And notice that I said that we would put an emphasis on the Holy Spirit, because it is a Spirit that leads us to sonship. It is a Spirit that blesses our adoption, and it is the Spirit that confirms our hope. And that's kind of our broad outline this morning. Now, I read J.I. Packer's famous statement on understanding our Christianity through God's fatherhood over us. But let me double down on that a little bit. Um, This this week, I had the privilege of kind of reading through um, for a second time, and the first time in a long time, um, that chapter in J.I. Packer's Knowing God on Sonship, Sons of God. I think that's the name of the chapter. And there he talks about this concept of adoption and how the Holy Spirit has caused us to be adopted right into the family, into the household of God, our Heavenly Father. And as he says that, he distinguishes between justification and adoption. And he does this in a, in a wonderful way. And if you want to hear something that sounds, that sounds like, whoa, that's a little... That, that, that's a little surprising. He says this just just having ended talking about the value and the wonder and the greatness of our justification, our forgiveness of sins because of Christ. He says this, but this is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. See right? You're like, you're like ding 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 right now. All of a sudden, your ears perk up. is say justification is not the highest blessing of the gospel. He says adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Now this is the way he's going to unpack this. His point is this. Justification is a forensic idea. It's the idea of the courtroom. It's the idea of a judge and of righteousness. And if looking at us and recognizing our sinfulness and the fact that we have repented of these sins and we have we have placed them on Jesus Christ, and Christ has died to pay the penalty that every sin that I will ever commit, He has paid that in full. And so, because of that, forensically, legally, the judge says, Doom, I declare you righteous, you are covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. See, that's that's justification. It is rich. It is wondrous. It is filled with faith and grace from the Lord. It is, it is, it is, it is exceptional. This is how salvation begins. But it's not the entire story. Because after the judge slams the gavel and says, I declare you not guilty on the basis of Christ's payment of your sins. I he doesn't come down to give me a hug. Have you guys ever been to like traffic court? Why, why these guys giggle. Because <laughs> we all kind of know how like intimidating that is and stuff. And if you know you have a fixed ticket or you have to pay a penalty, you pay the penalty, and after the judge says, okay, case dismissed, you don't go, all right, judge, come on, bring it in, bring it in, judge, right? He's not interested in hugging you. He's gonna call the bailiff on you. Right? Because it is not, it is not an issue of affection, it is an issue of legal, forensic accomplishment. That's justification. And this is Packer's point. But adoption, right? If justification is a forensic idea, adoption is a family idea. Right? This is about love and relationship. God brings us into his family as fully embraced children. It implies closeness, affection, generosity, and belonging. Now, after I've said all that, Listen to Packer's words again that I read before we prayed. You sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. Does that that kind of bring life to that statement of God's fatherhood In our adoption into his household. Well, that's what we will unpack this morning. And we begin with verse 14. The Spirit leads us to sonship. Look at verse 14. It says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So let's take that first phrase We are led by the Spirit of God. We are led by the Spirit of God for all who are led by the Spirit of God. And the reason why I pause here is because the leading of the Spirit happens in the context that we read earlier. Go back to verse 12 and 13 for a second. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So he speaks of debt, right? A legal obligation, And he says, there was once a debt that is built up because we lived in the flesh, according to the flesh, and that will be paid for in full in our death. But now, and what is implied is there's a different kind of a legal obligation. There's been a change in our status. And that change in status has come through the Spirit, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So we're talking about sanctification. We're talking about killing sin. We're talking about holiness. And this is what's interesting to me, that all of that is packed into the phrase, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God. And what's interesting to me is that sanctification and holiness, for the Christian, Paul ties to their sonship, through their, to their childness right the fact that they are children adopted by god our heavenly father now now before we lose this particular emphasis of the holy spirit in it all even our sanctification you know uh, john owens the 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 puritan theologian right who wrote the mortification of sin he gets that From that verse 13, if by the Spirit you put to death, mortify the deeds of the body of the flesh, you will live. I want to make sure we understand that none of this is an emphasis on what you do. It's an emphasis on what God, the Holy Spirit does in us. You are to put to death, right? You are to, to put to death sin, to grow in holiness, to grow in your sanctification by the Spirit. The Puritans refer to a gospel holiness versus a legal holiness. And by gospel holiness, they meant a holiness that flowed out of this this idea of who we are in Christ. Out of thankfulness, out of gratitude, out of a gladness of this relationship, of connecting to this heavenly Father. And we want to drive that in a little bit and realize that's what adoption is. It is us becoming sons of God and trying to bear that family resemblance. See, that's a gospel, Holy Spirit-dependent, christ-dependent kind of sanctification versus a legal holiness that consists of rules regulations forms and outward appearances we we are talking about a gospel sanctification and that's what we mean by led by the spirit of god it is the spirit of god that leads us to sanctification and the killing of sin but paul intentionally connects that mortification of sin growing in holiness. He connects that with sonship. Look at the rest of verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, right? We are led by the Spirit and we are sons of God. Now, by sons, right, because I don't want our sisters to get kind of upset about this, right? Paul means children. But the reason why he uses sons is because he's talking about a concept that is well known in the Roman world. He's talking about adoption. And so he wants to put an emphasis on the sonship of brothers and sisters in Christ. He's trying to say that there is an adoption, right, that has spiritually taken place because of what the Holy Spirit has done in our lives, such that we, all of us, are the rightful heirs of all things to, the, to God, our Heavenly Father. So it's the Spirit that is working to sanctify us. We saw that, that that we are mortifying sin by the Spirit. But it is also the Spirit that has established us as sons of God. We who are being led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And so whatever that obligation was, right, that, that the deeds of the flesh bear out, then we now are sons of God, and there's a different obligation upon us. Sons should act like their namesake, like their father, like their royal family. That, I think, is the point. We don't just belong to God's family, we act like we are part of His family. Jesus was the first to really emphasize the idea of our Heavenly Father. He spoke of it so often, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. But let me give you a taste of some of the things that he spoke to. Matthew 5, 48, he says, you therefore must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. See, sanctification, holiness connected with who God is as our Father. Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to To your Father who is in heaven. He keeps connecting our, our work, our sanctification, right? Our doing things that are righteous and good and bring honor and glory, not to ourselves, but to God, our Heavenly Father. See, this is the work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit that leads us, right? To sonship. Okay, now I've said it, and I'll emphasize again by sonship, we mean. The adoption of men and women, right, to the things of the Lord. God does not exclude our sisters whatsoever. They are, they are fellow and joint heirs with us in all things. So the Spirit leads us to sonship. Well, verse 15 tells us again, and again, this emphasis on the Holy Spirit. He blesses our adoption. He blesses our adoption. 15 is very rich. So look at that with me. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. He is the spirit of adoption. You see that interesting phrase? For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the capital S, spirit of adoption as sons. So Paul's making a contrast between two. He is saying that there is a spirit of slavery right and and he's not necessarily you know pinpointing who or what that is but he's trying to say that imagine that if there was a spirit and his cause was that of slavery and there was the spirit of slavery is probably the flesh or or sinfulness right and the idea is that slavery implies fear and we aren't saved to just be slaves in fear now let's get this correct Romans does speak about how we have now become slaves of righteousness. There's an element where we have an obligation. We are servants of the things that are righteous and holy according to the Lord. But Paul's point here is that versus this this employment or this condition of being a slave, we are instead adopted as sons. Right? As a slave, there's an uncertainty of the master's favor. There's no love obligation. It's kind of like our work relationships. You go to work, right? Same thing, you know, you don't go up and give, a, give the judge a hug because he pardoned your, you know, your, your te- you know, whatever penalty, right? In the same way, you go to work, and if you did a good job by your boss, he might be nice. He might say, hey, you did a good job. You don't go, oh, bring it in, bring it in, right? He's not family, he might you know he might be a good guy she might be a, a good lady and might be kind to you but it's not to say that employment or slavery or indentured servant, her, wherever it is like at the base of it is a different emotional connection spirit of slavery falls back into fear but in contrast to that what are we as christians but you, Paul says, has re- have received the Spirit of Adoption, capital S, and it's, so, it's almost like a title for our Holy Spirit, that He is here named the Spirit of Adoption to make sure that we understand that adoption, spiritual adoption, comes only through the work of the Holy Spirit, and we have received the Spirit of Adoption as sons, as sons. F.F. Proust, describing what adoption meant in that Roman world, it says, in the Roman world of the first century, um, an adopted son was a son deliberately chosen by his adopted father to perpetuate his name and inherit his estate. Now, let me say this, because uh, how it's different from our earthly adoptions today is that today we usually adopt minors or even babies, right? But back then, like uh, a Roman citizen that, you know, that had a lot of influence and status and wealth, he would adopt usually a young man, almost a full grown man. And he would look, as FF Bruce continues, he would look for someone not that is not inferior in status, right? But someone that might well enjoy the father's affection more fully and reproduce the father's character more worthily. He looks for someone who fits for his family. And when he adopts him, he receives everything. So that, Leon Morris's definition of adoption is this. Adoption is a useful word for Paul, for it signifies being granted the full rights and privileges of sonship in a family to which one does not belong by nature. See, that's us, spiritually speaking. We don't deserve to be God's children. His sons and heirs not by nature, but he has brought us in. And he, Leon Morris continues, this is a good illustration of one aspect of Paul's understanding of what it means to be a Christian. The believer is admitted to the heavenly family to which he has no rights of his own, but he is now admitted and can call God his father. So that's what we're talking about. The spirit of adoption, meaning that the Holy Spirit has not just redeemed us has not just um um given us new life and energy and um uh, you know reformed us at the very core of our beings but as part of his ministry to us he has he has brought us into the heavenly family so that we can call on god as our heavenly father and that's the last part of that verse you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear you've received a spirit of adoption the spirit of adoption as sons by whom by 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 me no by the holy spirit so that we can cry out abba father see abba is a aramaic for father but it's particularly used as an intimate name of affection um, many have likened it to you know uh um, our our english word like for papa right i always think it's interesting and it, part of it is because the the you know the limited capacity of little babies right but when babies learn to talk right it's just the same syllable twice right they usually say mama all my babies say mama first and i'm like no no say dada dada right like they don't know they got to say mama first all right go say mama first so they learn how to say dada put your tongue on your roof and say right dada papa right it's always right one syllable repeated and i think that's true in almost every language That there is a term for father that is a term of affection that is usually simplistic, right? One syllable doubled down, almost all, Abba is the same thing. It is Aramaic, and it's it's what you would hear in the school playground. Children calling their fathers, right? Uh, Looking for help, hoping for a little bit of affection, whatever it is. And this term, Abba, Father, this phrase, Abba, Father, is used only three times in all of the New Testament. It's used here in Romans 8. It's used in Galatians 4, 6, which is a similar context where it says God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And then it's used by Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark fourteen thirty six, And He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. I think that's interesting because of all the times that Abba Father is used by Jesus and by the Apostle, it is used in the context one of affection. We could talk to God as our Papa, but on on top of that, in particular with Jesus, it is used at a time that is the most difficult trial of His earthly ministry. It it is a term you expect, you know, to, to come from the mouth of a toddler trying to get his dad's attention, Abba, Abba, And the testimony of the Spirit here concerning our adoption, you've got to appreciate, it's not just theological or intellectual. Paul is saying that the Spirit, right, um, of adoption has caused us to become sons and by the enablement of the Holy Spirit, we call out to God, our Heavenly Father, our Abba. Again, it's not just a legal issue right it's a relationship of affection this is what makes earthly adoption so wonderful not not just that okay here's a child that has no one to turn to and now they could you know they could get a house maybe they get a free education several free meals and as soon as they're 18 they're out the door i knew a young man who was adopted and uh um, i knew him as an adult uh and the curious thing, and I think part of it had to do with him, but um, after he turned 18, he had very little connection with his adoptive family. It's almost like their part was done, you know? And, and I, again, I don't, I don't want to cast judgment on that family. Um, or on him I'm sure there were some dynamics there that were awkward right and it's not like you need to be adopted to be estranged from your family right you could be a biological child and find that estrangement to be just as strong but my point is this that that is not what adoption is meant to be it's not merely a legal platform to get a little security for a small child now earthly adoption is wonderful specifically because the child is not just a legal issue But there is a deep and unshakable love commitment to these children by these non-biological parents that is full-hearted, that is filled with love, that tries to bring about joy. And through difficulties, because you have a sinner and sinners, and the entire household is filled with sinners, there is trouble. But nevertheless, there is love. See, that's adoption. And that's what we're supposed to understand is the key to the Holy Spirit and the relationship of affection that he has established for us in our sonship. Not a spirit of slavery. God didn't justify you in Christ so that you could be his agents. Period. No, you are his agents. You are his representatives, yes. But he also saved you in Christ. He sent his son to pay the full penalty of all your sins, a lifetime of sins, to pay hell for you on the cross so that you could be his child, so that you could belong to him. And if you have trusted in Christ as your Savior and Lord, you're in God's family. John 1, 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Or listen to this, 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now let, let me say 1 John 3, 1 in the more important way, All right? Right? Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. You guys, you guys have to know that old song, right? I think it's from the RSV. The ESV reads terribly as far as I'm concerned because it's kind of like, see what kind of love the Father, right? It's like, what are you, a child, right? What happened to behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. And then here's the punchline. That we should be called the sons of God that we should be called the sons of God. You don't have a right to be called God's son. I don't have a right to be called God's son. It is the Holy Spirit that has adopted us into that family. And you should behold, his whole point is, check this out. This is the manner of God's love for us. That he paid for the price of sinners. And he could have just walked away at that. I am a good and gracious God. I sent my own son to die on the cross for your sins. So you're free. Go live. Try not to sin. But the manner, the kind of love that God has demonstrated to us is that we are called the sons of God. That's remarkable. That, that's how that, that's an emphasis on all of our catechisms, right? What's Minister Shorter Catechism? What's the chief end of man? to love God and enjoy Him forever? See, there's a relationship of affection. That's what I mean by the Holy Spirit blesses our adoption. We we are not just redeemed in a legal sense. We have been redeemed into a household, into a loving family. We We are belongers. We belong here. This is our people. And this is our Heavenly Father. The Spirit leads us to sonship. The Spirit blesses our adoption. And the Spirit confirms our hope. Look at verse 16 and 17. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. And heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. The first thing we see in verse 16 is that there is a confidence a confidence that the Spirit provides for those that are God's children. It says that the Spirit Himself bears witness, He testifies. And as He testifies, He bears witness, He does so with our own spirits. In other words, in our own minds or in our hearts, in our thoughts, in our motives, He reminds us constantly that we are children of God. Like I mentioned in Mark 14, when Jesus is praying in the garden, and he is calling God, Abba, Father. It is a moment of crisis, a moment of difficulty. And similarly, when we find ourselves in a moment of crisis and difficulty, we are not alone. And the Holy Spirit will bear testimony to our souls that we are God's child, that that has never ended. God didn't stop being our child because we have trouble in our workplace. He didn't stop being, uh, you know, we, he, didn't, he didn't kick us out of his household, Right? Because we're having difficulty in these relationships. He didn't stop being our heavenly father. Instead, it's the opposite. He continues to establish, and the Holy Spirit reminds us constantly that we are still God's children. It's the spirit that bears witness with our spirit, that you are the child of a king, and that our heavenly father knows what it is you need. He knows the number of hairs on your head, and he cares for you. In Matthew seven, Jesus asks these funny questions. He says, "Which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? All right. Oh, you hungry for bread? Chomp on this bread, fool! Right? It is a nice rock. Who does that? Right? And he says, or if he, if the son asks for a fish, you give him a serpent, a cobra. <laughs> Eat this fish! <laughs> right? What father does that? None." He says, if you then, this is Jesus just telling us what it is, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? It is our sonship, our confidence in being God's children that holds us when everything else seems to be falling apart. And it doesn't mean that God intends for everything to go well, right? Let me make sure we put that excellent and important disclaimer out there. The scriptures and the gospel, right, um, do not promise you that if you place your faith in Christ, that your life is going to go splendidly, that you'll be prosperous, and that there'll be peace, and that nothing bad will ever happen. No, that may come in eternity, but for this life, Jesus promises that those that follow him will have some tribulation, will have difficulties, there will be harshness, and realities that are painful. But what happens in those moments is that the Holy Spirit Himself will bear witness with our spirit that we are indeed children of God. We will know that we are loved, and we know that it is a divine love for us. We'll remember that our Father is a real Father, and that even if our earthly fathers have been utterly, pitifully failures, our Heavenly Father, right, He never fails and the love of the Father is poured out into our hearts because of the Holy Spirit. That's Romans 5, right? So we have confidence as His children. And we have that confidence even when things go wrong. He goes to say that not only do we have confidence of, as children, but also the Holy Spirit grants to us a certainty of being heirs. Verse 17 says, So if we are children, and the Holy Spirit has, has assured us that we are children, then we are also heirs. It says, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That part is remarkable. Children, adopted children, are legal heirs to the privileges and the possessions of their father. So part of our adoptions means that we are heirs, and Paul's, Paul puts some emphasis on that. To remind us of what is to come. And not only are we heirs of God because He's our Father, look at what it says. We are fellow heirs with Christ. The implication of that is that we are joint heirs, that we are heirs with Christ in the same way that His sonship is an heir or inheritor of the blessings of the Father. We, together with Christ, we as sons and daughters, with our brother Christ, we receive all that is the privilege of being God's people. Do you know that adoption... It is maybe a shadow or a glimmer in the old testament it 's not spoken of often. It is using an illustration of the nation of Israel, that Israel, this little girl in the street in the slums, and that God adopts her, raises her up, and then marries her which I think is a little bit weird, but nevertheless, right? You know, that, that, that's the idea, right? That maybe there's an implication of that. Maybe there's a, a, a shadow of adoption in the Old Testament law, especially in, like, Exodus and uh, in Numbers, where God keeps saying things, right? In Deuteronomy, where God keeps saying things, like, the firstborn is mine. So that maybe, maybe there's some kind of shadow of adoption there. But let me assure you that adoption, as clearly defined in the New Testament... All right? That that is a brand new thing. It is part of the new covenant reality. And as children, as adopted children of God the Father, we are also heirs with Christ. Heirs to what? Well, literally everything. It's not clearly defined here, and it's spoken of in a lot of different ways throughout Scripture. But I think the idea is that we inherit the material universe. Do you remember that Adam and Eve, when they are created uh, in the garden, they were to bear dominion, to have a de- dominion over all God's creation, to care for it, to explore it, to nurture it, to thrive in it, and cause it to thrive. It's part of their, their mandate of being human beings made in the image of God. Well, I think that similarly goes out to the heirs of God the Father, that we possess all things. Romans 4.13 says, the promise of A- to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Psalm 2.8 says, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. He's saying that to the son, but remember we just read that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, when... Uh, the Corinthians are arguing about, you know, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. He says, Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. See, whatever else it means that we are inheritors of everything, it means certainly that all things that have ever been created exist ultimately to be received by us unto our eternal joy it is to feed our gladness and the goodness of being god's children but the second thing i think we inherit is we inherit the glory of our father we get his infinite goodness it's not just good stuff that god has intended to give us as our inheritance But the fullness of the wealth of who God is, the glory of God himself, the most exceedingly precious value of all. And even the Old Testament saints sense this sometimes. Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Or Revelation 21, 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Their inheritance, that's the good news. The bad news is that if we're going to be joined together with Christ, we're also going to experience some suffering. The certainty of our inheritance is that there is tremendous blessing to come. The bad news is that it comes by the path of suffering. Luke 9 23, Jesus says, If anyone wants to come after me, let him take up his deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Second Timothy three twelve, um, the apostle writes, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Hebrews twelve, six, in the context of discipline, says that the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The path of glory is paved with suffering. First Peter 4:13, "But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed, because you are tied to His glory as a fellow inheritor of the good things of God." And then there is some bad news. But I don't think Paul puts it in there to just kind of make this stark statement. He's saying this is the natural path of this life. And so hang on to Abba Father because that's who you have. That's the certainty that you have. The confidence that you are his child and that he cares for you. I like what John Newton once said. He says, suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate and his carriage, his car, should break down a mile before he got to the city which obliged him him to walk the rest of the way he says what a fool he he we, we we should think of him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile oh my carriage is broken my car is broken right we think dude you're gonna receive a huge estate you can buy 30 of those cars just walk yourself into the office sign the papers and get your stuff And how silly we can be sometimes in the path of suffering and difficulty to wring our hands and to think, oh, how difficult my life is. Woe is me. Woe is me. Woe is you. You are a son and daughter of God, the heavenly father, the supreme, almighty, sovereign God who's cast his love upon you, not because you deserve it or because you are cuter than the other kids or because you are smarter or you have some capacity that God is willing and desirous to own. No, you don't deserve it. And yet he has poured out his love and affection upon you. That is not to belittle the difficulty that you may be facing, but it's to remind you that God has never forgotten you that the Holy Spirit has caused you to be adopted, to be His son, to be His daughter. And that heritage is rich, full, vibrant, and loving. Man, be filled with the graciousness, the goodness of having God as our Heavenly Father. Now listen, if you are here, and you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, let, it, let us be clear. It's not because the deal's not sweet enough. It's not because God has not done enough. It's not because, right, that it's not, it has nothing to do with what he offers. Because if we hear this, the spirit of adoption is for every child of God. Everyone who confesses their sinfulness, repents and turns to Christ alone for salvation. This is every child of God redeemed every person that has placed their faith in christ and so if you are unwilling to bow your knee to jesus christ it's certainly not because god is good enough it's because you desire something different because you have a god of your own making but the gospel is the good news because how good it actually is